We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. But this time we're really gone national because we have our expert maths co-host, Dr. Sophie Calabretto, joining us and leading the episode. So that's exciting. As usual, my name is Dr. Neve Chapman, your weekly host, and our show is proudly recorded and supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. For me, I'm on Lutrawita, so I acknowledge the Palawa people, and I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. I always enjoy a Sophie episode because it reminds me of something challenging, but she does it in such a fun way. Um, And today we're going to be talking about biostatistics, data, and how these can be used to help at-risk populations, which I really love because epidemiology is a big part of my role so I'm really excited to talk with our expert guest Dr Karen Lamb from the Centre for Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Melbourne. So Sophie tell me a bit more about what we're going to be talking about. I would love to. Thank you, Neve. So we have Karen today. So Karen is a biostatistician and senior research fellow. And essentially what Karen does is she provides statistical advice on the design, analysis and reporting of medical research. So this is all about using data in the most sensible way to help people. I hope that's right, Karen. So to begin with, can you just sort of tell us what biostatistics actually is? Because I'm a mathematician. I often say to people, my biggest regret is not doing any stats. So tell me about all the things that I should be doing with my life rather than maths. Yeah, yeah. You should have been a biostatistician, Sophie, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so biostatistics is using statistics, which is an element of mathematics, to answer questions in health research. So of course, at the moment with a global pandemic going on, um, I always used to say there was no such thing as a statistical emergency, but we're right now in the middle of one. So my friends, colleagues that are infectious disease biostatisticians are working like crazy to try and understand how the disease is spreading and also to help look at interventions. Now, personally, I am not an infectious disease statistician. I do a lot more in terms of um, cardiovascular disease, cancer, mental health, pretty much you name it outside of infectious disease, um, I'm involved in it. So What we do in biostatistics is we help um, from the start of your study, so setting up the design. I work with a lot of clinicians to help make sure that they're going to set up a study that is appropriate to answer the questions that they they want to answer. And then I work with them right the way through, making sure that they collect the data they need and also can analyse it in an appropriate way and understand the findings. Beautiful. So... I know that you do have a bit of a background in maths as well. So can you sort of tell us how you ended up where you did? Like how did you go from sort of maths to stats and then end up in biostatistics specifically? Because, you know, with stats you can analyse a whole lot of things, but you've moved more into the bio space. Yeah, so I am a completely accidental statistician, mathematician type person. Um, I really didn't like maths, I have to admit, at school. It wasn't um, my love. Sorry, Sophie. Um, It wasn't my love at school either. It's fine, Karen. I don't get insulted by that at all. Um, It was one of those things that I could do and I liked helping people with because I knew a lot of people in my class were struggling with it. But um, I found it really hard to know what the point was of what I was learning. But I was really lucky that... um, 
my dad's a mathematician, um, which gave me a real insight into the kind of math I didn't want to do, I have to say, sorry, dad. Um, (laughs) My dad is a pure mathematician and he really loves the beauty of mathematics. That's his bag. Um, But what's great about him is he loves math so much that he knows how you're going to apply it, why it's useful, all that stuff. So when I was learning maths at school, um, I used to come home and be like, why am I doing this? This is pointless. I don't want to do this. I don't know why I need to know this. And he'd be like, right, well, Karen, you know, if you were building a bridge, you would have to do this, 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 and this. This is all maths. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Fair enough. Um, And look, I, all through school, thought I would go and do, um, I was going to go and study English literature, actually. Um, Real, real passionate reader, um, love writing. And look, it just so happened that I got to the end of high school and I did better in mathematics than English, which, you know, crushed my soul a little bit. But then I was like, oh, well, look, maybe I'll go do maths then, um, much to my dad's delight and my maths teacher's delight. So, look, I was really lucky that I had support of people in my life because I still think um, I found maths incredibly intimidating. And, you know, even as someone that works in maths, I had a bit of imposter syndrome about it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I went to uni, started doing maths, took statistics purely because it was like maths and that's all I knew about it. And then I just, my eyes were open to all the cool applied things you could do with mathematics because statistics at its heart is really quite an applied subject. It's answering real life questions with mathematics. And they taught us lots of stuff in the department from their applied work with psychologists, medical researchers, um, education department, uh, environmental science. So you got to see that you were learning these tools that could be applied across the board. Um, But I particularly loved the medical side of things. Um, I think my mom had almost always kind of wished that I became a real doctor, you know, a medical doctor. (laughs) And so I think it was a nice way of finding a balance between you know, my dad's math love, my mom's health love. Um, and I felt that I could speak to both of them. Um, but yeah, it was a nice way of being a bit hands off from the medical world because I'm a bit squeamish with blood and whatnot, but actually help them with my skills in maths, which was pretty cool. So basically, you've just said that you're the perfect child, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yes. Again, mom and dad, if you're listening, definitely perfect child. Um, and so you've talked a little bit about the kinds of problems that we can tackle using biostats. And we want, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about a specific project a little bit later. But can you sort of tell me what are some projects that you've worked on the past? Yeah. So look. I guess, um, oh, where will I start? So I have done some work in infectious disease. See, I moved out of that area. Um, I've done some work in pneumococcal disease. Um, so pneumococcal disease um, is, causes problems, particularly with the very young and the very old. So um, young children get things like um, otitis media, which is an ear infection. They get pneumonia. It's, it's, it's really nasty. Um, and back early 2000s, they'd introduced a new vaccine for um, childhood pneumococcal disease. Um, It was quite an expensive vaccine and they wanted to assess how effective it was going to be long term. And the the idea behind it was they were hoping that if they were immunising children, then they would create herd immunity and then we would actually be protecting the broader population. So I did a lot of work um, on the mathematical modelling around um, the, the infection and disease, but I also did some work looking at vaccine uptake and whether whether people actually were, were receiving their vaccines and some of the characteristics um, of the population that were that were 
preventing people from going and getting vaccinations so we knew who to, to target. Um, and then I moved from there into more, I've done a lot of work over the years in neighbourhoods and health research. Um, there's a lot of work, particularly on um, obesity and what we call obesogenic environments. And that's how, you know, we know things like um, physical activity and diet are important for, for obesity. But one of the things is the environment you live in may not actually be be helpful for you to engage in behaviours that that will reduce obesity and also you know reduce your risk for other um, health outcomes down the track. So there's been a lot of work by health geographers looking at like access to fast food outlets, um, supermarkets, access to parks, green space, that kind of thing. And after my PhD, I accidentally kind of ended up in that area in social public health. Um, and it was a real interesting group of folk because it's a mixture of, you know, the public health medical stuff, the social science, the statistics, the geography. And it was just this great collaboration of lots of people trying to come together to say, well, what are the types of environments that help facilitate healthy behaviours, healthy outcomes? So, Karen, how important is it to have a multidisciplinary team so that you can adjust your statistical modelling or inform the study without necessarily being expert in that really niche part and how important is it to have those um, assumptions and what kind of assumptions do you need to get from experts? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Ultimately, the, one of the reasons I love the job as a biostatistician is, you know, I can't do this on my own. I, it's definitely collaborative work, which is what I really, really thrive on. Um, so yeah, certainly we need the medical expertise. If I don't understand the the condition um, or, or what we're trying to study, then I might not be seeing the the problems we're going to get and collecting the data or anticipating um, potential biases in our in our data sources. Um, I'm very much a generalist, and I think it's because I get so excited about so many different problems. Like I can't I couldn't really pinpoint an area in health that I particularly want to work in which is really great for like the clinicians across the university because I can come and jump in and help with whatever. Um, but, you know, it means that I have to be very careful in my communication. My communication skills are really key to my job because I'm aware that quite often I am talking to people and I, I don't have the, the background knowledge in the health area. So it's really important that we listen to one another. Awesome. That's great. Thanks, Karen. And I love how you're bringing together the maths, stats, multidisciplinary teams, but also how important communication is in good science. So stick with us, listeners, with That's What I Call Science, where in just a moment we'll be talking more to Karen about her work. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about using biostatistics to improve health outcomes in the community. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Karen Lamb from the University of Melbourne. So Karen, now I want to focus on a specific project that examines cardiovascular risk in Australia. So this is the Health Gap Study. So can you just tell us like a little bit about the Health Gap Study and also how you became involved in it? Yeah, so the Health Gap Study is one of my larger long-term collaboration projects, one of my, my favourite projects at, at Melbourne University. And it's led by a phenomenal Aboriginal cardiologist called Luke Birchill, who's based at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And what he was interested in doing is looking to see if we could examine existing risk models for cardiovascular disease. So some of you may have heard of the Framingham Risk Model. Um, this is a, a risk model that helps determine your sort of five-year risk of having a cardiovascular event. 
So we were looking to see if we could um, take that equation and see if it's fit for purpose for the, the Australian population and more specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population in, in Australia, specifically Victoria we're looking at here. And so why are the risk models currently used potentially not appropriate for everyone? Because that's sort of the vibe that I got out of what you said. So we've got these risk models, but potentially they're not fit for purpose. Yeah, so what we've got to think about is whenever we're looking at, at models established using existing data, as the premium risk equation was, we've got to think about who was the population used in the risk model. Now, the premium risk equation was um, developed in the US, so different different population and using, using data that's fit for, for purpose over there. Um, and so what we need to see is actually are the factors, I mean, we still think a lot of the risk factors are, are similar over here too. So if you're looking at cardiovascular risk, things like your blood pressure, your cholesterol measurements, that kind of thing, they're still going to be important factors, but are we applying the right kind of weighting to those factors in your risk model for our population? And we talk about this a lot when you're thinking about data science and um, and how generalizable your findings are. Um, I don't know if you've seen lately, there's been discussion about how um, like often science and data science gets like women wrong as well yeah. in particular, because often women are understudied in, in some of the, the research that's, that's undertaken. And so the findings that we've got aren't necessarily generalizable to, to women either. So, so it's important that you review any model you're using with the population that you've got in mind and, you know, adapt it if needed, because ultimately what we want here is to get the best prediction for our population so that people need care are getting care when they need it. So if there's one thing that I always find interesting with stats is that you've sort of got these like different populations that you look at and you have a denominator population that you're sort of studying people within. So how do you how do you set that up? I mean, how do you use, I know that there's something called spatial mapping that I want you to talk about. So how do you use spatial mapping and health geography to help identify your denominator population for the analysis? The problem we have in Victoria is trying to access the outcome data set. So your, your um, cardiovascular events the hospitals if you're trying to look at a risk model you need to know who who has outcomes right you need to know if you've had a cardiovascular outcome or not and the not is the key issue here because now we have a situation where people in our gp data set might have gone on to have a cardiovascular event at the hospitals that we have data on or they may have had an event at another hospital or they may have had no event. So what I needed to do is try and separate the people that didn't have an event from people that may have had an event in a non-study hospital. What I wanted to do was try and look at developing a catchment area around the study hospitals to try and determine who was likely to have had an event at those hospitals. So what I started off by doing was trying to look at, right, this is the postcode the hospital is located within. What are the postcodes surrounding that hospital and are they likely to be the the catchment areas for the population going to that hospital it was just too simplistic and it actually was missing a lot of people that were traveling from from a little bit further in so what i ended up having to do was a bit of mapping around the number of people presenting with events around the hospitals and then looking at the distribution of those events spatially and then try and actually look at that um, spatial distribution to to then work backwards, if you like, to say, right, these are the people that are likely to come and have an event. So we'll use that as our denominator. Go back to the GP data set and only extract 
the patients from those postcodes so that we can say, right, people from these postcodes had an event, but these ones didn't have an event and developed a risk model. Now, there is a, a huge degree of uncertainty in this work, um, which I completely acknowledge. And so I guess one of the things we've been trying to stress through this pilot project is the need for for better access to to broader data sets. So what are some of those challenges in terms of like missingness, which you've kind of talked about that you weren't sure if your hospital data was collected, but then also um, really trusting your data source? Because I love it because it's messy, which I think that's more true of what we're actually going to be working with. Whereas in a research setting, you're just kind of controlling everything to such a point of like, is this actually generalizable? Do you want to comment on a, the, the strength of these approaches and like why it's important for us to consider how we're characterizing people in our health system more broadly? As a statistician, you know, I said I, I usually design studies from the start and, you know, have a lot of control. But as I mentioned, that makes it harder to, to study hard to reach populations. So that's one of the, the real benefits of using the linked data. But there are huge, huge challenges. So one challenge, you know, Scandinavian countries, often you've got like this unique identifier and you're linked throughout the whole system. So we know who you are and we know what data is yours. Whereas in Australia, we have to rely on on matching and and probabilistic modeling, really. So we look at the probability that you're likely to be the same person across mm. different data sets because we don't have this unique ID. And so that's all done in the in the background. I work with some fantastic um, data managers at Biogrid in, in Melbourne, and they, they do a lot of this work in the background trying to do this matching for me. But that's really challenging because, of course, there's not... We, don't, we know it's not complete accuracy there, right? We know that sometimes we're going to be misclassifying patients across data sources as being the same when they're not. In Australia... Um, you know, you could see a, a clinician for a GP for one thing and then go to another GP for another thing. And so there might not even be linkage across your primary care, um, which which causes us challenges when we're actually saying, well, we don't know these people's risk factors, so they've been excluded from my model. But actually, that could be really valuable information that we just don't have. We've been working closely with the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander liaison officers at the different hospitals is... You know, actually accurately capturing um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander status across data sets, because again, once you link them, we sometimes find across the hospital data sets that it's inconsistent across your presentations. Um, so sometimes we might have recorded a patient as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, and then sometimes they'll be classified as non-Indigenous. Sometimes they, they won't have been asked at all. And so one of our first steps in trying to develop this risk model is actually looking at how do we determine that that the patients that we're, we're considering are actually either the non-Indigenous patients or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders. And a lot of what I find most interesting in the study is not even necessarily the risk modelling itself, but understanding how people are moving through the, the healthcare system and trying to actually feed back to hospitals and GP practices about what information we need um, and how we can actually be helping people more. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think um, it's a really powerful tool for us to undertake these large data studies because then we can use that to inform policy and practice or incentives for GPs to really be uh, collecting things in the electronic health record or even when they launched the electronic health record there was a lot of public concern but I think people don't realize the types of decisions that are actually informed by that data and how helpful it is. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with my co-host Sophie Calabretta and our expert guest Karen Lamb. Stick with us for part three.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about using biostatistics to improve health outcomes in the community. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Karen Lamb from the University of Melbourne. So Karen, we've been talking a lot about data, and I want to sort of continue on with that. So studies like HealthGap that you've just talked to us about require administrative and linked data in order to be successful. But data security is a big issue everywhere and it's sort of come up in Australia recently with sort of like that my health record and stuff were there any issues involved in terms of data security when you were working on this health health gap study yeah absolutely um one of the challenges we have is you know if we're, we're using data from different sources there's often different levels of protection and you know if you're linking data that's national like we are with the national death index to state data like we've got with the, the GP registry data to um, the hospital data, we've got to be very careful about how that data is managed and stored. So what we actually do within the university is we work um, with the data remotely. So I never have access to the data myself. It's not downloaded onto my machine. It's not, you know, and even as a biostatistician working with, with um, patient data, I still always have to ensure good data governance and good data protection with password protect and whatnot. But with this one, there's that extra layer of protection because this is administrative data. This is people's um, GP records. This is not people that have, you know, signed up for a study per se. So as a statistician, I'm not looking at individual patients. I'm interested in, you know, average risk factors, like average blood pressure and and using people's data to, to develop models. I don't look at an individual patient. So, as I say, the, the security is quite intense. I have to, as I say, log on to this remote desktop um, elsewhere. So I've got this virtual access to the data, do all my analysis on this secure server, and then write all my reports within there. And then in the data governance step, there's um, someone independent of the study that has to review all of my reports, make sure that it's okay to release that information, that there's nothing that makes anyone particularly identifiable in my data set before that's um, extracted by by us. Now, as I say, you know, not being a clinician myself, not being involved in individual patient care, I, I deal in averages. And that's, you know, something that we were talking about with, you know, the my health records and stuff too for, for health research. It wasn't to look at individual patients. It was to try and track what was going on in the health system and where there were health needs. And I think it's really important that we're careful to communicate that to people when we're using their health data, that it's it's very heavily regulated and protected so that we we're not using it um, for, for other purposes. The, the ethics is very strict about what we're doing with it and how it's stored. So that posed some challenges because, you know, we're dealing with quite a big data set, as you can imagine, you know, like we had a million and a half um, patients in the GP data set that we were dealing with. Um, and we had to make sure that we had decent computational power to actually deal with that number of patients and also the, the number of um, characteristics. We had people that had blood pressure mul- measured multiple times that we were studying. So we had this massive, massive data set with lots and lots of variables that I was then remote accessing. And unfortunately, what sometimes happens with these things, we've got the security sorted, but um, the computational power to do the modeling is sometimes what we need to argue to get as well. So that was another whole negotiation to, to actually make sure we could even do the modeling. So. Yeah, cool. I think that, yeah, that's really interesting to think about because I think people get quite worried about security, as I said, but you've made me feel safer, Karen, even though I'm not involved in this at all. Um, The other thing that I really want to talk about quickly is um, you're talking about 
working with hard-to-reach populations. Has this health gap study shed any light on the challenge of working with these hard-to-reach populations and these Indigenous populations? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we've been working closely with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, liaison officers at the hospital and also working with community to try and help understand you know why some of the risk factors aren't being measured because you know what I found interestingly as a statistician that likes all the modeling and more of the complex math side of things what I find most interesting about the study really is has been the descriptive information and at identifying the gaps in terms of risk factor measurement and also the challenges in actually identifying you know, who who in our sample is um, from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background. So we're actually using that information to go back to, to the hospitals, go back to um, carers and actually say, we, we need this information to be better equipped to help. Um, and also to actually discuss with them what, what information do they need from us? So, you know, this, this has to be a two-way conversation. It's not a case of we're developing these risk models and they're just going to sit and get dusty. It's a case of if we've got these risk models, are they going to be useful? Are they going to be helpful for, for the people that are um, actually needing the care and also people giving the care? So we've got to be conscious that we're, we're using this data and it's important that we give feedback to, to the people that we've been lucky to get data from. And then I sort of just want to finish off in terms of just sort of what you do in general. So in an ideal world, what is something that government or society or people or anyone, what's something they could do just to make your job easier? So obviously, like you are here, you're trying to help us. How would, what could we do to make it easier for you to do your job in a more meaningful way? Look, I was actually quite surprised having done work with linked data um, in Scotland, like at um, how disparate the different data sources were. Like it would be really great if we could get broader access to, to hospital data without all of these individual negotiations. Um, also, as I say, the surprising thing for me in Australia was, I mean, I get it, things are controlled state by state, but the fact that it, it's so hard mm-hmm. to actually access data more broadly, you know, interesting talking to you Neve, with what you're doing maybe in Tasmania and cardiovascular health and you know why why can't we use more of our national data so we can understand what's going on and you know have broader representation um but it's just so tricky I think the data governance is still very very challenging and I think we just need to work a lot harder as well to establish public trust in data and the data security I couldn't agree with you more, Karen. And something that I always say is if we had a streamlined system like the NHS, you would be able to see things like um, their risk model for heart disease. Um, So like what we've been talking about, is updated every two to three years because Mm -hmm. they have really good electronic data. Whereas we've been trying to do a national-based study accessing data when people do a stress test, which means they might have heart disease. And about half a million of those tests are done every year. It's taken about seven years to get that data because you've got to go to every state and every hospital and make an agreement. But that actually makes it really hard from a resourcing perspective. We have limited resources in medical research for us to have that continuity, but also for us to make meaningful change. So I'm just like, yes, Karen, I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Sophie, for organizing an awesome episode. Thank you, Karen, for being an awesome expert guest. Uh, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the show. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. You can catch all of our previous episodes at thatscience.org. So check it out and get in touch with us on social media if you enjoyed it. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. 
You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.